evening and happy Monday night. Welcome to Foodline Radio, your hub for all things edible from seed to feed. We're on Vancouver's co-op radio, CFRO 100.5 FM. You can tune in anywhere in the world via our live stream on coopradio.org. My name is Amanda Johnson, and I'm grateful to have Alex Giva in the control room. Growing food may seem simple, but there's a lot more to it than just planting a seed. Sometimes pests and pathogens attack plants, and that's when you need a crop doctor. On tonight's show, we'll talk to Karn Manis, CEO of Terramera in Vancouver. Terramera has developed a novel way to treat numerous plant pathogens. We'll also talk to Karen Ageson, who's had much experience in this area growing food. Karen is the CSA farmer and market garden manager with Farmers on 57th. All this in the next 60 minutes here on Foodline Radio. To kick off the show, let's listen to Danny Michelle, three-time Juno-nominated Canadian singer and songwriter. An empty road and a rusted sky and abandoned Mardi Gras. Led me to a mountain top so I could see it all. Your salty kiss. And we're back on Foodline Radio this Monday night. Uh, we're talking this week about crops and the, the things that might happen if you grow your own food. I'm here in the studio with Karen Ageson. Thanks for joining us, Karen. Yeah, thank you. So, what experience do you have growing things? Well, um, yeah, I guess I, I could say I've got a few years under my belt. I've uh, been involved with a group called Farmers on 57th since 2009. But even prior to that, um, I was growing in in lots of places. I've been woofing. I've been um, backyard uh, farming in Ottawa. Yeah, yeah. So at least over 10 years of growing. Okay. So y- what is Farmers on 57th? Yeah, Farmers on 57th is a project in Vancouver, B.C., South Van, um, on 57th Avenue. That's why we're called Farmers on 57th, um, near Canby Street. And we're actually on the grounds of George Pearson Centre, which is a Vancouver coastal health facility. And we operate about an acre worth of gardens and market garden. Um, We do horticultural therapy with the residents that live at George Pearson Centre. And we have a market garden where we're growing uh, produce, so food and flowers for people that sign up for a harvest box with us. CSA. CSA, that's right. Very cool. So you sa- how many acres did you say you have? We, we operate about an acre of gardens, I'd say. About half of that is in the market garden, so um, heavy, more heavily on the production like of food and flowers in more typical like row agriculture, whereas the other um, ground, like the other half acre, is allocated to wheelchair-accessible beds and uh, an orchard. We have dwarf heirloom um, apples and that's all in the residence garden so quite a nice landscaped area where the residents themselves are growing equally productive um, gardens for to yeah grow food and flowers for themselves okay so what do you grow all kinds of we do uh, mixed veggies mainly and um, so basically anything you can grow in the lower mainland here we just like carrots beets peas beans um, broccoli 
uh, turnips, radishes, like a whole smat, tomatoes, like um, eggplants we've been getting into, just a whole smattering of things. We do a big variety of veggies to keep our CSA members interested in what they're getting each week. Wow, and so yeah. you have enough gro- go- growing that every every week you're harvesting different things. Yeah, so I'm right in the middle of some pretty intense crop planning. Um, yeah, we have up to about 50 vegetables where I'm like planning meticulously like when to plant them, uh, when we'll expect to harvest them. And so, and this is, yeah, a typical kind of planning process for a CSA farmer. And then once the actual season starts uh, presenting itself, everything changes. And um, But typically, if you have a good plan in place, you're going to have a, a good number of items per week that are uh, going to fill the box and make it a nice lush um, week of veggies for the people that are coming to pick them up. Okay, so you mentioned when the season hits. Like, is there some uncertainty there? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, variety in the seasons year to year. I'm, I mean, you'd remember a few years back we had quite a bit of a drought um, so that was an anomaly um, last year it was quite a warm um, summer and uh, and yeah this year I mean our fields are still drenched and that's that's typical for this time of year but you know it'll be interesting to see when they actually dry up and when we can get into the soil and start you know working it to be able to plant okay yeah. and, and what's the strategy with with planting things so if you're growing such a wide variety of things i mean do you grow the short ones beside the short ones and the tall ones beside the tall ones oh yeah that's part of the crop planning yeah definitely part of like the um tetris kind of puzzle piecing it all together so uh yeah you could talk about um you know we we trellis our beans and our tomatoes and so um, we would typically plant things behind that that can tolerate a bit of shade, which is actually really good in the middle of the summer. So yeah, you could put your lettuce crops behind the tall bean trellis and, and you'll ha- have a nice little microclimate there for lettuce in the middle of the summer. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, in addition to unpredictable weather, what other unpredictable things might happen in a season? Well, um, yeah, so you never know what kind of uh, pests or diseases you're going to be getting. Um, and yeah, it's it varies each year. You know, we, we converted our um, farm from lawn. It was lawn before we started growing it, um, converting it into a garden. And so it was kind of fresh soil. It was almost like a clean slate. And because we're in the middle of the city, we're not inundated with all the agricultural... Um, pests and diseases that you would see in in other more agricultural areas of Metro Vancouver and Lower Fraser, the Fraser Valley. Um, so so we've kind of been. It was nice because I, I was a I was pretty novice when I first started, and um, and it was easy at the beginning. But as we've been growing there year to year, definitely things have found their found it, you know, and um, and we've been dealing with all kinds of different little critters that come or or diseases that are impacting our plants okay so little critters as in (laughs) animals insects or yeah i mean i think very common in the city of course would be things like rats um and we also we deal with a lot of crows here um yeah 
And, uh, but surprisingly, we haven't had any issues with, I mean, this is a common question, um, you know, don't you have squirrels come and take things? And no, no, we don't. Um, but even smaller than that, like slugs has been a pretty constant um, pressure in our garden. And uh, aphids, definitely. They're, every year they seem to show up on something. Um, we've had cutworms. That's a more kind of agricultural issue, I guess you might say. Um, wireworms were something that we dealt with really early on because when you're converting grass, the, the wireworms really love um, sod. And so when we uh, removed that sod, a lot of those wireworms were still in the soil. And, um, and they, yeah, I was warned that, you know, we would, having done that conversion that first year, we would have some wireworm issues. And, um, and then more recently, pea weevil somehow found our garden and we've been dealing with them. So they're a weevil that affects peas? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Very specific. Okay. Yeah. This is amazing. (laughs) At least on our, I mean, I can really only speak to my experience on our, in our garden. The thing that the approach that I've been taking with these little critters is that, you know, I learn them as I have to deal with them. Um, Really, our approach is by growing such a diversity of crops um, and by growing extra and by really uh, working to develop the health of the soil, that we avoid total devastation by pests and diseases. So if you have a really strong, like healthy, vibrant soil, um, your plants are going to be really healthy, and they're going to be able to actually resist a lot of um, pressure from diseases and pests. Okay, so so diseases and pests. So uh, other other pathogens that are perhaps not insects, but do you have those too? So we have um, every year uh, we have powdery mildew. It's common. It's so common in Vancouver. I mean, you can see it on the trees. It's just we have a quite a damp climate here, and um, yeah, so it's it runs rampant, especially at the end of the year. But this is also because you know by the end of the season comes September, October. Um, the the our annual plants that we're putting in our gardens, especially the heat loving crops like tomatoes, zucchinis, that kind of thing, they are they're dying. They're done because the days are getting shorter. It's not as um, hot anymore, and so they're ending their life cycle. And that's when they become more susceptible to things like powdery mildew. Okay, so yeah. it's it's actually something that just breaks them down at the end of the year. Yeah, it's almost a yeah, just a regular kind of part of the decomposition process. Yeah. Okay, great. Wow, that's so exciting. So um, how do you prevent, I, I know you say if the soil is healthy, the plants are more likely to stand up against these pests. Are there any other ways? Have you ever used um, other other methods, perhaps treatments instead of prevention for your crops? Well, um, you know, I I haven't delved too deep into um, you know p- products. Um, I know last year my co-farmer um, she did apply. She did an application of BTK to um, deal with the the pea weevil that was attacking the peas. What's BTK? It's um it's a bacteria. I'm going to say the name wrong. Bacillus thuringiensis, something like that. <laughs> and uh, it's a naturally occurring bacteria. And, and, you know, she did her due diligence. She researched it. And that was what she decided to apply. Um, but, you know, there's so many things you can do before you actually get to that point. So, for example, like we had a cutworm issue a couple years ago where 
um, these cutworms, they basically, after we transplanted our little baby cabbages, they just, the cutworms came and just, you know, chopped them right down, like clear cut our whole row, right? Um, and so there was a lot to learn in that. So since then, we tend to um, do more of a test. We do it staggered. So we'll put, uh, we'll transplant a few, just a few of our little baby seedlings and see what happens. And, and those can actually also act as traps. So once we see that something's been taken out, you can actually dig around in the soil and just manually take those cutworms out. And they're not going to be an issue for when you do your real planting. Um, so you can use trap crops. You could also, we've used um, physical barriers. So we'll transplant things in. Um, a cabbage seedling and we'll cut off the bottom of uh, a, you know those little pots that you do transplants in a, a bigger um, potted up kind of pot and and that can act as a collar around the plant and so you put it down an inch or two and that's going to stop a cutworm from actually getting to your your little the stem the juicy stem that it's after so there's a lot of you know even before you get to the the um time when the pest is like attacking your plant there's a lot you can do preventatively um through like more mechanical um practices they call them um cultural practices okay cultural practices that makes the cabbage sound so precious when you're talking about putting the (laughs) putting the barrier around it and testing it with certain crops it just i'm going to appreciate my cabbages a lot more yeah well and i mean yeah i i've just really touched on the surface you can you can do staggered plantings like i mentioned um, you can even, like, if you're paying attention to the life cycles of pests, you can try and time your plantings to avoid certain stages of the, the pest's life cycle or when they're hungry and looking for that kind of food. So, yeah, um, there's lots you can do. What about, like, um, like insect traps? I've seen, I know in some greenhouses, they have, like, sticky paper you, you fly. Oh, sure. Have you ever, is that possible outside? <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> sticky tape. Uh, yeah, I know. I haven't seen that outside. Um, traps. Well, I mean, I mentioned the wireworms before, and, and it's kind of similar to the, like, doing a test run with just a few seedlings. But with the, the wireworms, we've done potato traps because they really like the root crop. And basically, we stick a, um, a not a toothpick, but a chopstick into the, a potato tuber, and we bury it. And so, and then the chopstick's sticking out, so we know where it is. And we'll go and we'll check out that tuber, you know, every couple of days. And if it's totally full of um, wireworms, one, we've trapped the wireworms, and we can take them out of the garden. But number two, we maybe that bed is not ideal for potatoes, so we'll put them somewhere else and put something that's not going to be impacted by wireworms there. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, that is so cool. That's Karen Agen from Ageson from Farmers on 57th, and I think we're going to have a bit of a break now, and then, Karen, you'll be back with us for the panel discussion mm-hmm. at the end. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for, for telling us about this. Yeah, no problem. Thanks. So now we're going to hear from Newfoundland-born Amelia Curran with What Will You Be Building? Cabbage Barriers. <laughs> What will you be building when you 
Back here in the studio on Foodline Radio, your weekly conversation about all things edible from seed to feed. We are on Vancouver's Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM. Today we're talking to crop doctors about how to help our crops stay healthy. So I'm here in studio with Karn Manis. Hi, nice to be here. Thanks for joining us, Karn. Thank you. So you are from uh, Terramera, a Vancouver-based business that actually develops biopesticides for agriculture and for bee health and public health. That's right. Did I miss anything there? <laughs> um, well, we, we do biopesticides and, and increasingly we're uh, doing biofertilizers as well. Um, Terramera is, um, uh, was really founded um, starting uh, uh, with biopesticides. We were, we were looking at why a lot of the, the natural materials that were used for natural pest control were um, were used less commonly and were not as big a part of um, um, the the protection regime that both organic and conventional growers used, and oftentimes didn't work as as effectively as the synthetics. We really tried to break that down and answer why, because you know, from as a biologist, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, that makes no sense. Um, you know. Plants and trees have evolved over 35 million years. Some of the most sophisticated methods of being able to protect themselves from pests and diseases, and um, and and live and even thrive in some very difficult conditions. And so, you know, over several decades, uh, a number of natural materials have been used um, to help uh, uh, help protect and, and uh, um, um, various different kinds of crops and. And we really wanted to answer the question of why they were more, less consistent sometimes than we would have liked, and their performance was um, uh, not as strong as consistently strong as we would like. And so, what did you find? So, when we broke it down, um, so Terramara started while I was at UBC, um, uh, in, and really started with work I was doing in two thousand and nine on an argument that something that biological materials and organic materials couldn't be as effective as, as uh, synthetic ones. And, uh, so Terramera actually started in 2010, uh, as a company after we did some work on it. And, um, um, we started really trying to break down the, the key reasons that, um, um, these biological natural materials weren't working as well. And one was, first of all, they're, um, Usually they are extracts from from a, from a natural compound or a tree extract or seed extract, or um, and there were mixes of all kinds of different molecules in there. So if you think of orange juice, there's lots and lots of stuff in there, uh, versus these synthetic materials that uh, were just one compound. And so uh, that was one that there was there was a, um, a a large mixture. They were poorly characterized often, and oftentimes we didn't know what was doing what was in there. Then stability was an issue because they were, you know, made to degrade. So that's that's a good thing. But um, 
oftentimes they were not stable enough to be used by an end user. And then the third most interesting thing is we started really looking at what was happening in the pharmaceutical industry, where in the last 10 years, biologicals have gone from a very small amount of the, the new pharmaceutical active ingredients that are being used to actually the majority of new active ingredients in pharmaceuticals come from biologicals. And what really um, made a big difference there is the science of drug delivery. So getting those materials effectively targeted and delivered to the right place. Um, if you think about it, it, it's kind of, you know, it makes a lot of sense. If you, you know, you were taking a, a drug that helped you for heart disease and it ended up, you know, in your liver, it's not going to do very much. Um, and so a similar thing, if we're, you, we're working to control a particular disease on a plant, it has to you know, especially with biologicals, because they're different from a conventional chemical, um, which, um, you know, if you want to get treat a, an insect, um, you, you want it to get inside there. Um, uh, and, and especially because they're very different from the conventional chemicals we're using. So conventional insecticides tend to be neurotoxins, which are toxic to that pest, but we all have the same neurology. So it's also a, a toxin for us. It's just a matter of dose. They, idea is that because we're much larger, we can handle more of it. But the fallacy there, too, is that a lot of the, the materials we're using, you know, are, are extremely stable. They, they build up over time and, you know, they build up in the soil, they build up in the water systems. Um, so, you know, one of the conventional, for example, one of the conventional chemicals that we're, we're looking to, to replace where we have, you know, used, um, common natural materials. We, we worked a lot with neem oil, which, um, but other natural materials as well. But we've done a lot of work with neem oil because neem is an extract from the tropical neem tree. It grows in, it's native to South Asia and India. It's used um, a lot in natural health uses. Um, so you can go to Whole Foods and you can buy, you know, neem oil for health uses. You can buy it in toothpaste and skin creams. And it's been used mostly as, a, you know, um, in traditional health. But it also is an amazing tree in so many ways. It's able to protect itself and thrive in very interesting uh, and difficult conditions. And, um, you know, for decades now, actually, it's been researched on, on the, use, the uses of, of, of neem oil for protecting against disease, um, insects and diseases. Um, and, in fact, it was such a big thing that in the 1990s in the U.S., the National Academy of Sciences did a whole report where they – you know, they they actually called the report um, "Neem: uh, An Answer to Global Problems," which for scientists is like an unbelievable, the over-the-top <laughs> title. But there was so much hype about it, and still, yet you know, we're decades later, and it's used in some organic farming. It's used in some specialty uses in Canada. It's actually not approved yet for use um, for pest control, which is why we don't we don't sell. Uh, in Canada yet, but it's been approved in the U.S. for several years. And what we looked at is how do we use this um, natural material and get it to be more consistent and more effective? And what we found is if we could we could deliver it into that insect or into the disease more effectively, we can increase the performance level of it by three to ten times or more. Oftentimes, we're, we actually are outperforming the best synthetic chemicals on the market. Um, and uh, so that, you know, this technology, we call it Inspirium technology. Um, you know, we've developed it, our R&D teams all here in Vancouver, um, and it has the potential to revolutionize how we do, we do farming. I mean, we can get natural and sustainable materials to perform 
better than the synthetic um, materials we're using, um, you know, we can actually grow food, protect, get less loss, um, and grow more food more efficiently in a clean and sustainable way. And that's that's what our goal is, is, is to systematically solve each of the issues to that allow us to make organic, uh, growing sustainable and organic food um, more efficiently than we're growing conventional food today. Right. So it's about getting the, the product to where it will be most effective on the plant. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I sometimes lose people with the technology because you can't see it. It's, you know, on a molecular level. So if you think about it, it is about getting the, the materials into either the plant or into the insect. And so um, we use, um, you know, natural materials that are able to kind of shuttle it to where it needs to get to and target it. So if we want to target against, um, uh, you know, a particular worm, for example, or nematode, uh, um, then we're able to get it the material to be taken up better there. Or um, if it's sprayed onto a plant and it's, to you know, protect against powdery mildew, which Karen was talking about earlier, We've, we were able to actually get almost 100% control of powdery mildew, uh, in you know, not not just in the lab, but even in the field where we've been testing against, uh, you know, in, in several crops. You know, we've we've been testing on grapes, on tomatoes, on cucumbers, on um, uh, on berries. So it works so. on the fruit as well as like leaf crops. It works on fruit. It works. We've tested on fruit, um, and it works really well. It works on leaf crops. It, it, it works in, in on soil pathogens as well. So, um, uh, so it works on things like potatoes and peanuts and things that are grown underground. Um, w- you know, one of the the one of the most toxic pesticides that we use uh, uh, in you know the most one of the most toxic pesticides to humans that's used in agriculture. Um, is a material that's used to control soil pathogens, and actually several of the most toxic ones are used for soil soil um, um, pathogens as well as for nematode control. And one of them that we've we've tested down in the south, uh, in the U.S. south southeast in Georgia and Alabama is on um, cotton and peanuts, um, and it's a material called aldicarb, and it was um, uh, sold by by Bayer under the Temic brand name. And it, it is so toxic that if you had a pile of this stuff and you put your hand on it, you would die within 15 minutes. It is, it, it has a half-life of 120 years, and it's water-soluble. And we put this on our food <laughs> and in our soils, and it, you know, it goes into the, the water systems. It is, um, um, you know, and, and what we, uh, but the good news is that, um, um, you know, we, we've tested alongside we've had universities test um, neem oil using our Inspirium technology, which is really a molecule, a molecular delivery system that targets the neem better. Um, and uh, we actually were able to outperform um, aldicarb, this very toxic material, so we got less, um, better control of the, uh, the, the nematodes, and the worms that were attacking the, the plant. Um, we got control of insects as well. Uh, on the leaf with a spray, um, and uh, and actually the yields came out anywhere from twenty to o- almost a third better, higher than um, than when they were using the synthetic. Um, 
chemical. Well, it is a the the answer to the globe's problems, right? Like that article you read. So, <laughs> I think I, I've I've seen it in yeah. health shows as a as a human health promoter. So it is. Yeah, it's a, it's quite a, an interesting material. It's interesting that in Canada we haven't allowed it yet. Um, I mean, we're work, trying to work with the government. And I think that there's interest more interest now, but. I mean, you can buy neem oil for any other use. You can buy it to put in your body. You can put it, put it to put it on your body to brush your teeth. You just can't spray your flowers or your potatoes with it yet. So hopefully that changes over the next few years. But um, in the meantime, we we may look at some other natural materials that are all appro- are already approved to use our technology with. But right now, we've just focused a lot of time on on neem because it's a complicated material. It's it's got a lot of potential, and we've shown that. It can do all of these things from, you know, it has no effect on bees. We've, we're using the material as a, in a, in a technology where we are able to, in a, sorry, in an application method where we can, uh, where we've been working with Hides for Humanity here in Vancouver, and we've been able to see um, uh, control of the vir- varroa mites that are affecting bees. Usually formic acid is used. That's right. Which is which also is... not handleable. No, that's right. And it's it's really corrosive and it's not fun to, to, to work with. Um, uh, and we've been a- we've tested against that. We've gotten, you know, 100% control of the phoretic mites uh, and we've got control of some of the mites in the in the uh, in the in the brood cells as well, and we're we're working to optimize that. But uh, we've got really great performance using neem oil yeah, <laughs> and neem extracts. Incredible. So uh, I mean, it's it's one thing to have this, this great product. I'm curious as to I mean, you said it started over an, an argument about yeah. like natural natural compounds and and why can't they be more widely used to yeah. control and stuff like that. Yeah. How did it, how did you take this from an idea to uh, to what it is today? <laughs> well, I, honestly, I wasn't starting thinking of starting a business around this. I um, I did my first degree in um, biology and genetics and biotechnology, um, and then I was doing law school at UBC, <laughs> and uh, um, I guess it was fertile ground for for arguments. But uh, um, I was actually more wanting to just prove myself right. Um, and I don't take impossible or can't do it very well. It's, uh, uh, I, I think I'm genetically predisposed to not believe in that as a concept. And I just, I, went, I had some time on my hands and I started looking into this and some of the problems. And it's really started with asking some questions around, you know, there's got to be something that works. And, and, and if these materials work, why don't they work? Um, and, uh, so actually it started with, with, with that. Um, and then it, uh, I got curious about it. I did some research and, and then, um, I, I was interested, I, you know, a lot of, there was some literature that pointed towards neem oil and, um, I started working with it and kind of started just building it out of my basement, building some prototypes to, to see what might work and what might not work. And, and I think you've been in the news a lot lately. You've grown your business, and I, I heard some good news feeds lately. What, what's been going on lately? Well, last year was an unbelievable year for for the company. I mean, we, I mean, for the first couple of years, it was you know, I mean, it was me, um, and then we started kind of growing slowly. At, um, in 2011, 2012, we um, we just had friends and family helping, and and uh, but we actually some of the research that. That was we got out early on the kind of levels of control we got on some things, some non-agricultural pests as well, like bed bugs, got across the desk of the USDA. And in 2010, 
we got a call from the USDA. Out of, I got a call out of the blue in December of 2010 saying, we heard this really interesting research from this company in Canada. Will it come down and present to us? And uh, I did in 2011. And, um, you know, over um, the next few months, they did some of their own due diligence. And then they came back and declared what we were doing in the public's interest, which meant that they could start helping us. And they opened up their research that they were doing. They looked at what we were doing. They opened other you know, I mean, we didn't even know where to go in, in the U.S. government, and they open, they pointed us and opened the doors to all kinds of other things and said, you know, we need to get this out for um, to the public, and, you know, we you have to get uh, regulatory approvals, and we'll help you get that. And so they did. And uh, so um, they were, um, you know, they, they saw what we were doing in a whole bunch of areas, and they were working with them on agriculture. But at that time, they were particularly interested in the fact that it also worked on bed bugs, <laughs> and so they fast tracked that as a as a uh, uh, as a product, and, and we have regulatory approval. And now it's, it's a product we we actually sell only in the U.S., but it's called Proof, and uh, so it's uh, you know I mean it's been a, a really interesting ride. Um, in 2015, 2014, we the BC Technology uh, Industry Association. Um, connected us with Walmart, and Walmart asked us to come down. They said they wanted to for to, the bed bug remedy. for the bed bug product, okay. yeah. And so that's that went on sale in 2015 in some of the Walmart stores and Home Depot in the states. So in the states now, the states. why can't we buy this in Canada? Um, because we've been working with neem oil, and neem oil is a <laughs> it's very odd. It's it's an organic material. It's used, you know, you can use it for health uses. It's just hasn't been approved for pest control. So if you want to market it for pest control, you need it. A sep- Health Canada ha- has a separate regulatory approval. And that could probably take to. decades to go through. It takes a long time. Yeah, it's about three to six years on, on average. So in the U.S., what happened is they um, they have they cr- the, the U.S. Congress in the 1990s created some special groups to be able to um, um, fast track lower toxicity biological materials, um, both within a group within the the Environmental Protection Agency to help to make them get to market more quickly, uh, biopesticides group within there. And then um, they also have given money to the USDA to try to look at and support lower, you know, more sustainable options. And so they've, they've had some funds to be able to be more proactive with it and a mandate to be more proactive with it. Um, I think in Canada we've just been slower to change the system, and the the the, the way that the pesticide uh, approvals are done in Canada is still very much focused around synthetic chemicals, and so regulating a biological material is just very different from a mass-produced small molecule synthetic compound, and so it it requires some work to be able to understand that, and um, so we're. we're you know, hopefully we'll come along. We haven't got to, you know, we've had a lot of interest in the last year, both from, you know, globally as well as, uh, you know, um, when this, uh, the, the new government was elected, there was, there was a growing level of interest in what we were doing. And last year we were, Kiramara was actually one of nine companies out uh, around Canada where we were, um, where the government of Canada said this is um, one of, you know, uh, a, a company that has high growth and high potential where we have a chance to make some, you know, a technology that makes a big impact on the world. And so they started engaging with us more. Um, unfortunately, Health Canada is not part of that consortium that they engage with us. So um, we're still slow on that. But hopefully things will change here as well. 
And particularly as, you know, hopefully as people start seeing that, you know, there are better options out there and we might be able to be in a position where in 10 years you could, your organic food will be cheaper than conventionally grown food. <laughs> yeah. Um, One more thing as we wrap up the interview. I'm curious in hearing about the biofertilizer you yeah. mentioned at the beginning. Can yeah. you tell us about that? Yeah. So because our the basic technology we're using isn't isn't around neem or any materials, it's around taking these natural materials and getting them to be taken up either by the plant or or another target like a, a, a worm or a, a pest or a disease, we started saying, okay, well, how else could we use this? And we found that, you know, you could take my nutrients and micronutrients and fertilizers and get them to be absorbed um, better as well. Um, and so we were able to use a smaller amount of the materials and get better results. And we're actually seeing in some cases where um, we're able to, you know, stimulate the plant and get, you know, um, um, get yields that are I mean, it's ridiculous. I, I almost don't even want to say it because you, it's hard to believe. Like, in some cases, we're getting 100%. In one case, we got 1,500% increase in yield. Like, it's just ludicrous. So it's still still early. We're playing with it. We're, we've got somebody we hired this year who is an expert in, in biofertilizers, and we're combining the technology with biofertilizers to get fertilizers, organic fertilizers that just perform much, much better. Um, and so those are coming out Um you know, I, I think a lot of this stuff will be over the next few years as we're working with sort of select farmers on getting that recipe right of, you know, what are the pest issues that they have? What are the fertility and, you know, nutrition issues? And can we get that to work better so they can grow orga- clean and organic food more efficiently than they were doing so? Wow. Well, Karn, we look forward to seeing those on our shelves in, <laughs> in the next couple of years. That's Terramera CEO Karn Manis. Thank you so much for joining us on Foodline Radio. Thank you for having me. We'll hear from Luke Bryan now with Rain is a Good Thing. I'm Leanne Collinson. I'm Molly Caron. I'm Rick Havlak. Your host, Amanda Johnson. I'm Elodie Jacquet. I'm Annie Rosenberg. My name's Mike Bodner. My name is Annika Reinhardt. I'm Jeff Anderson, your host. On Foodline Radio. Radio. Your weekly conversation about food waste. Food advertising. Inglorious produce. And lesser known fermented beverages. Food insecurity. Food challenges. Mushrooms. The ethical aspects of growing food locally. Uh, disability is in the kitchen. The future of agriculture. Boosting your outdoor culinary game. Patterns of human food consumption. Ice cream and guacamole. Ice cream and guacamole. For all, all things, things edible. edible. Your hub for all things edible from seed to feed. This is Foodline Radio. You're listening to Foodline Radio. Foodline Radio. Foodline Radio. Foodline Radio. Vancouver's co-op radio, CFRO on 100.5 FM.
Welcome back. We're uh, we're back in the studio here, and I'm here with uh, Karen Ageson from Farmers on 57th, and uh, Karen Manis, who's actually just talked to us about Terramera biopesticides. Is that right, Karen? Terramera, yeah, yeah, that's right. So um, I'm I brought you both here today because I'm hoping that you'll be able to uh, solve the problems of the world uh, yeah. because we all eat every day, right? So if we don't have food, we're we're in trouble. <laughs> And uh, so, so based on what you've heard, Karen, are, are Terramera's products something that you can see being effective? I, I mean, just listening to, to you talk, it's been, um, I, think, I think it's great to be exploring biological methods of controlling um, huge agricultural issues, um, because I think it's quite clear that the way things are um, happening, especially in conventional agriculture, is really detrimental to our planet and to our own health. You know, it, it, the chemicals that are used in conventional agriculture pollute our water, pollute our bodies, pollute. You know, it's um, it's not something that we can keep doing. Things mm-hmm. have to change, yeah. and I, you know, I've been really I, the reason why I became involved in agriculture even even though it's such a small um project within the city i'm just i'm really drawn to the fact that we do all eat and that food should be produced in a way that's not also killing us on the rear end you know like it all it needs to be um (laughs) healthy the whole way through Mm -hmm. um we eat the food but we also drink our water and and if there are products out there that can kind of change on a very large scale the practices um, that are currently in use to produce our food, that's that's great news. But in order to make the switch, it needs to be somewhat easy to implement. So um, are Terramero's products implementable on the large scale? Yeah, so that's, I think, um, that's this is an, an area where we've had um, some degree of, of back and forth and dissension with some of the organic farmers we work with because one of our goals is to make the organic materials um, cheap and easy to use and um, and accessible. So we're, we're working with both conventional and organic farmers. And we have some partners of ours who say organic farming is not supposed to be easy. But mm. what our view is is we want I – I'd like to see the day where organic farming is – is actually cheaper and more efficient, and we've actually have we have studies we've we've replaced out farmers' whole conventional um, regime their 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 grower treatment with with uh, neem based and uh, with sorry an organic based material where we've um, we've seen them actually decrease their losses, increase their yields um, by huge numbers. But the way that we're going to be able to make this change on a large scale is to make it easy for them to change. And so what we're doing is we're working with conventional farmers to see how they're actually applying their conventional um, products. And, um, and, and so we can design the organic materials so that they are just an easy replacement. They don't have to think about it. They, they just replace one bag, their conventional bag, with an organic bag. If they're spraying, they, you know, we're going to the level of detail where we say, okay, if you're, they're used to using you know, five pounds per acre mixed into their fertilizer. Let's design it so that we get it so that it's five pounds per acre. They just replace it out. And um, because, you know, I think it's it's about a cultural change and, and it's about economics. And we have to get the economics to work. And nine, it's like 
over 99% of, let's see, in the U.S., there's ni- there is um, 5 million acres of, of organic farmland and 900 million acres of agricultural land. So mm-hmm. it's less than 1% of mm-hmm. all of the farming. Mm-hmm. So what we have to do is is infiltrate all of that so if we're going to make a change at a, at a large scale and that's what we're trying to do i can kind of understand the sentiment of organic uh, organic farming is supposed to be hard like it's it's <laughs> not it's supposed so to be easy well i mean there's lots of factors as to why it's so expensive mm. so i guess what i would i would just say to that is that i think you know applying products it does have to be part of a whole um realm of practices right Mm -hmm. so i mean the fact that what did you say the acreage of conventional agriculture is like in the u.s it's 900 million acres 900 million acres and a lot of that is really kind of segregated monocultures monoculture after monoculture and um a big proponent of um component of sustainable agriculture is that we don't have monocultures Mm -hmm. um we need to we need to have mixed crops um so that life can happen you know so it's sustainable so that you know the um pollinators are interested in being there for more than just one time in the year Mm -hmm. or you know um that the soil there's uh the soil is being um enriched by different kinds of crops and so um I think I think it is important to to remember that there's a whole slew of practices that that make up organic agriculture and they are valuable um so i mean i think it is i think there's huge potential in bringing in an organic um pesticide and having that used by people that would other by otherwise be using really detrimental Mm -hmm. chemicals that that has huge uh, potential for impact but at the same time um you know from the other angle other practices also need to be changed. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And the the key thing though is, you know, what how can we pick off some of the the, the major issues that we're dealing with both in our, you know, in making organic farming more accessible so that, you know, we can utilize natural materials and, you know, um, harness their power so that we can live more healthy mm-hmm. and um, make clean food affordable. And, yeah. you know, one of the things that we we look at is, you know, we forget that everything that we put on our food becomes part of that food. If we spray some a plant or put it in the soil, it becomes part of that plant. If we feed it to an animal, it becomes part of that animal. If we feed it to ourselves, either that plant or the animal that's fed with that material, th- we eat that and it becomes part of us. Mm-hmm. And our, our bodies have a, a degree of an ability to detoxify itself, but we're just, you know, we've t- created a food system that ha- is, is at every step um, we're adding more and more toxins, and, and mm-hmm. as a result, our bodies have to do so much more work. And oftentimes, these materials, you know, are stored in ways that are not so great for our bodies. Oftentimes, our bodies will take these toxins. They, they basically use fat cells as a storage, and they stick that toxin into the fat cell, and then it's stuck there and doesn't want to get rid of that cell because you know, you'll start releasing those toxins. So there's a lot of health aspects um, to all, you know both health and environmental. Um, repercussions from these materials we're using. And for so many reasons, it doesn't really make that much sense. You think about it, and over the last 80 years since we've since synthetic um, inputs were designed, both pesticides and fertilizers, but pesticides in particular, you know, we've, we've decided that 
you know, there's an industry view that synthetic materials are just better, they, that biological ones will never be as effective, which doesn't make any sense. Like, these materials have never existed on this earth. That's why we've been able to patent them, because they've never existed. Mm -hmm. But somehow we've also been able to buy this, or the industry has been able to buy this idea that they're inherently better, which they're not. We've just spent over 80 years of all of the brightest minds in this space saying, mm -hmm. how do we put all of our technology and innovation to making synthetics work? If we can now put that technology and innovation to making biological materials, natural materials work, we're going to get great results, and we've been seeing them. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to invite you guys both back, but we are kind of almost out of time here. So yeah. thank you so much for joining us. That was Karen Aitchson and Karn Manis from Terramera and Farmers on 57. Thanks for joining us. Thanks thank for having you. us. Um, this has been the Crop Doctor edition of Foodline Radio, Vancouver's co-op radio CFRO 100.5 FM. So we'd love to hear from you, our listeners. What challenges have you had in your own gardening exploits? Have you tried any remedies or preventions? Um, you can tweet us at Foodline Radio or leave a comment on our Facebook page or website, foodlineradio.org. I'd like to thank our guests today. And if you missed any part of this show, listen to our podcast on foodlineradio.org, where you can also find additional information on our guests. A big thank you to everyone who has made Foodline Radio possible. Laurence Gatinel, Rick Havlak, Mike Bodner, and Alex Skiba. If you would like to join our team as a host, field correspondent, or a researcher, get in touch with us. And uh, coming up next week, there's going to be some pretty cool shows. So tune in Mondays from 8 to 9 p.m. Signing off, I'm your host, Amanda Johnson. I'll be back next month with another edition of Foodline Radio. We'll leave you with The Arrogant Worms, a Kingston-based band. Listen up, brothers and sisters. Come hear my desperate tale. I speak of our friends of nature Trapped in the dirt like a jail. Vegetables live in oppression Served on our tables each night this killing of veggies is madness, I say we...